Welcome to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are four optometrists who graduated from ICO and are working across North America. And today we're going to focus on new advances in diagnosing and managing glaucoma. Once again, we are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Carr. I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindawa. I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. So there are there are a lot of new advances in glaucoma that have been buzzing in the news over 2019 and is spilling over into 2020 as well. The first one that came out, I think not in 2019, maybe the end of 2018, was the ocular response analyzer that measured corneal hysteresis and glaucoma progression. So just, yeah, just for people who don't know what cornea hysteresis is, it actually uh, measures the tissue property of the cornea. So it um, assesses the cornea's ability to absorb and dissipate the energy. So it kind of works a little bit different from measuring the pressure. And it's um, pretty predictive in measuring the visual field progression in glaucoma. So it's not replacing corneal pachymetry or IOP. Yes, or IOP. It's just another way of looking at the the cornea and the property of cornea. The better the cornea is, is at absorbing shock means a higher hysteresis, and the lower the patient is at risk for developing glaucoma. Just to add on to what Rav said. And it's it's pretty easy. Um, it's kind of like the NCT. Yeah. It's, so it it's basically... A second puff test. Yeah. Because patients yeah. loved it All the patients first time. Patients love it. Now we're going to do it again. But doesn't the ocular response analyzer, they also do pressures as well. So they'll give you corneal yes. hysteresis measurements and also IOP measurements in one machine. So it's like a two for one. Two in one. Yeah. So just get rid of all those NCTs and then you'll just still have that puff of air machine, but you're doing more. But you won't have auto refraction either. Not that oh, it's the most my accurate. My NCT machine is separate from my auto refractor. Oh, oh that's so yeah. Yeah. Ours is combined. <laughs> you have to get up and sit down yeah. like twice? No, yeah. I'm not <laughs> I'm not coming to your practice. <laughs> um, it, it's also important to keep in mind that if you are going to start implementing corneal hysteresis as part of your, as like another piece of your glaucoma puzzle, the average hysteresis value is around 10 millimeters of mercury. If your reading is lower than 10, that indicates an increased risk of developing glaucoma and has been shown to have a higher predictive value for glaucoma than a low corneal pachymetry reading. Low corneal hysteresis has also been found to be predictive of the development of glaucoma, the rate of disease progression, and a favorable response to selective laser trabeculoplasty. So that's really interesting. It, um, some of the articles about hysteresis are showing that if you measure hysteresis and it is a lower value than 10, that gives you really good indication that this patient, um, if they're already diagnosed with glaucoma, um, that they have a higher rate of progressing. So that kind of tells me that I should be paying attention to a patient's corneal hysteresis findings even when they already have glaucoma. So it's not just a diagnostic factor. It's a it's a management factor as well. Would you guys consider getting the 
ocular response analyzer in the future, like as a, something that you would do quickly or kind of just wait on it? I think once there's more information out about it, my dad and I probably would eventually pur- purchase one. But the thing is, is it's newer technology and yeah. I want to make sure that it's pretty accurate. You know, like it yeah. actually adds to the practice. That's There have been studies, um, recent studies that have been up to, you know, 2018 that corneal hysteresis plays a role in glaucoma progression. So that's why I think after that last 2018 study, which was the prospective longitudinal study to investigate corneal hysteresis as a risk factor for predicting development of glaucoma in the American Journal of Ophthalmology in 2018. Um, I think after that study, there's been a lot more push to have corneal hysteresis as another diagnostic factor to measure glaucoma. So speaking of diagnostic tools or other diagnostic tools that can help with treating and diagnosing glaucoma, what about the OCT angiography? We'll call it OCTA for short. So the article that you posted says um, that it could basically diagnose early glaucoma Mm -hmm. and it makes it um, easy to monitor blood flow within the retina. So giving a new way to evaluate the health of the ganglion cells that can be destroyed by glaucoma. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also non-invasive and can measure vessel density with high repeatability and um, reproducibility. And each OCTA scan takes just a few seconds to do. So it can easily be done at every visit, right? Yeah. Or every patient visit. OCTA is definitely a big buzz right now. I hear about it all the time. It kind of overlaps with using the GCC or the GCA on your OCT scans. So, you know, when we do an OCT on a glaucoma suspect, we don't just look at their optic nerve RNFL. We look at their MAC OCTs too to get the ganglion cell analysis because sometimes we have patients who show glaucomatous damage in the papillomacular bundle of the nerve fiber layer before there are any changes to the optic nerve which also sometimes can be seen on visual fields if you do a 10-2. Some patients can show like a paracentral field loss before they show those, um, you know, nasal steps or arcuate defects. So OCTA kind of falls in that area of monitoring for glaucoma because if you take an OCTA around the macular region, you want to make sure that there is no loss of vessel density in that area which can be picked up um, and might correlate with the GCC. So it's, it's just another piece of the puzzle to confirm your findings on another test. It's It'll be important for like what you were talking about especially for those patients where you're like I don't know 50-50 like are they suspects or not? So this detects early glaucoma right? So it'll give us another piece of that puzzle to determine if they're actually glaucoma suspects or have glaucoma. Um, Alex, you guys have an OCTA in your office, right? We do. Um, we're still figuring out how to use it like most effectively, but we do use it. Um, we use it on a lot of diabetic patients actually. Yes. Yeah. Because you can detect like, you know, bad blood flow 
and that's for diabetics that's you know a big it's the main part of their whole disease process yeah. so um it's a good way to kind of like keep track of the people that don't have diabetic uh, retinopathy but they might start having it soon i think having octa in your office is definitely valuable because you can use it for so many other patients not just glaucoma, glaucoma or even patients. diabetic ret all right so the other new diagnostic advancements in glaucoma involve instruments we can take home so let's talk about eye care home which is only in the u.s yeah so this is not available in canada it's only used in the u.s and it's basically a rebound tonometer like eye care so it's designed to allow patients to measure their iop at home and you don't need a topical aesthetic um, which is a really significant advantage the device records six consecutive measurements, and the average, uh, the date, and the time are wirelessly saved to a cloud database. The IOP measures are not displayed to the patient, which I thought was interesting, just because the doctors don't, or optometrists don't want the reading to influence the patient. So say if the reading was really high, the patient might be like, oh, I need to take more drops to lower my IOP, or if the or if the reading's really low, they'll be like, oh, I could skip a night and not take my drops. So they can't read the, or they can't see the IOP measurements. It's all saved in this cloud database. That's really good. Like they can manipulate the data. You know, sometimes like when you ask your patients, like, what is your A1C? And they're like, they don't want to sound like yeah. that they don't take combined. care of their body. Yeah. So Not as truthful. Yeah. Not as truthful. Yeah. Do you guys have you guys ever heard of the ProView eye pressure monitor? That was a av- it's available on Amazon, but it's another home device that's available in Canada and the US. It measures the pressure through the eyelid on the basis of phosphenes. I have never heard of that before. Yeah, well, it's really inaccurate is what they basically figured out. Like a lot of experts try to compare those eye like those measurements to the Goldman um, tonometer and it was basically completely inaccurate but it's still available on Amazon so people can still I guess buy it and can be like I'll measure my IOPs at home well I just put ProView eye pressure monitor yep. in the Amazon mm-hmm. and it like a uh, search thing and it didn't, nothing comes up it's all blood pressure stuff no oh maybe it's only available in Canada then because it's a, yeah, it has I like don't... one review and it's like one out of five stars <laughs> like it did not do well do you think it's just a used one that someone was able to successfully (laughs) put on for sale but it's like weird you would put it on your eyelid like you close your eyes and put it put pressure on your eye and then you try to make like a phosph like a sensation so you have to push on your eye until that little halo appears and then it reads your pressure yeah and you're like oh look my pressures are fine all right so the next one we have is called Triggerfish. So it's a contact lens that you put on your eyes and it kind of measures the IOP kind of through like the changes in the shape of the cornea throughout the day. So it actually takes about like 300 readings every five minutes. Jeez, um, it works hard. Yeah. And it's throughout a 24-hour period. So the eye care home is um, checks for diurnal fluctuations, mm-hmm. whereas the triggerfish... It's a 24-hour period, so even when you're sleeping, it'll measure your IOPs. But yeah, so Triggerfish is um, pretty good for patients who um, who are progressing pretty fast and then 
when they come to your office and their pressures are within standard, like you got that reduction 30% mm-hmm. and they're still progressing. So it's kind of good to know if maybe later in the evening or nighttime their pressure is going higher so do you do the optometrists also get their iop measurements through like a cloud or some sort of program i know it connects like the it goes into this box that they have with the contact lens Mm -hmm. so yeah when you have the contact lens it's in your eye but there's also another metal round thing around your eye and they're holding a box. So it's pretty disruptive to your daily life if you're just like going out and about and people will probably stare at you and be like, oh, what's happening over here? Yeah. I <laughs> so, just, I mean, it's, you know. It's weird. Yeah. It's, it is a little bit odd. There was some new research in the journal Ophthalmology that measured the 24-hour IOP change with triggerfish contact lenses and visual field changes. So that study concluded that intraocular pressure-related parameters obtained with the triggerfish contact lens was associated with the rate of visual field progression in treated glaucomatous eyes too. So triggerfish contact lenses have the potential to be useful technology in detecting eyes that are at a higher risk of glaucoma progression while receiving treatment. Um, There's also... There's one more thing I did want to mention. So there's other companies that are developing implantable devices for permanent continuous IOP monitoring. So two manufacturers that have information about their technology are Implant Data Ophthalmic Products from Germany and Acumems from California. Implant Data is working on two versions of its device, which is called iMate. And one version uses a sensor placed in the sulcus during cataract surgery, and the other is designed for subconjunctival or subscleral implantation. Oh. And then Acumems is developing also two versions of its device, the iSense system. One version is placed with an intraocular lens into the capsular bag after cataract surgery, and the other is for anterior chamber placement at the time of a standalone glaucoma procedure. So both manufacturers have completed animal studies that had positive results, but um, Implant Data is the only one that's available for commercial use in only Europe and is currently going through clinical trials in the U.S., and nothing is going on in Canada for either of these devices currently. <laughs> so yeah, that's pretty cool for ophthalmologists right now. So here's an FYI for all you Canadian optometrists. Deepon, you shared this, right? Yeah. These are the things that are currently happening to in Canada to help push for new advancements for glaucoma treatment and management in Canada. So Fighting Blindness um, Canada, FBC, is undertaking a study of the burden of glaucoma on Canadian, op- or Canadian patients. Uh, the study will be based on data from their online survey. And if you are in Canada and living with glaucoma or know someone that does, you should tell them to take a moment to fill out this survey that's on their website. Um, The information will be collected to help advance glaucoma research and policy in Canada. And FBC is also following the latest research on optic nerve regeneration. Though still in the early stages of um, development, work is being done to develop an approach to uh, reverse optic nerve damage caused by glaucoma. 
So usually taking the form of cell-based interventions, like using cells to regenerate tissue, including stem cells or in-blocking molecules that inhibit regeneration, there have been some or like a few clinical trials to test the efficacy of these approaches, but research still continues to move forward. And the FBC will continue to monitor progress in this area. So we'll keep you updated on that. What's also interesting about the FBC is that they are actually trying to fight for MIGS procedures to be covered by public health insurance or the Universal Health Insurance of Canada. Oh, good. In March of 2018, they started environmental scans of MIGS in Canada. Uh, The scan is designed to collect relevant info on MIGS and offer conclusions that will factor into the future policies of whether or not the surgery should be publicly insured. Um, They're working alongside with the Canadian Association for Drugs and Technologies in in Health, so the CADTH. I think they're also working in collaboration with the Canadian Council of the Blind and Canadian National Institute of the Blind to make these policies happen. We'll link the uh, website for the FBC down below as well for you guys to take a look. And the last segment for today's episode is an interview with Dr. Carl Jacobson and Dr. Joanne Castaneda, who share their important glaucoma management tips for our listeners and their opinions on SLT as a first-line treatment option um, and some of the new diagnostic tools that we previously just discussed. So stay tuned and enjoy. So today on Four Eyes, we have two glaucoma experts from Berkeley here with me, Dr. Bilku. We're going to talk about glaucoma today for all of our listeners. We have Dr. Carl Jacobson, who is the chief of the ocular disease clinic at at UC Berkeley Optometry and also the chief mentor for the ocular disease residency program. And then we have Dr. Joanne Castaneda. Castaneda. Yes, there we go. She is the ocular disease resident and my co-resident for this year. And we want to start off with asking the first question because most of our listeners are likely going to be new grad optometrists or possibly even fourth-year optometry students that are getting into the real world soon. What is your general advice or what tips would you like to share with the listeners on how to manage... Um, new glaucoma patients if they're newly diagnosed or even when you're determining if they're a glaucoma suspect versus having glaucoma. So th- thanks for inviting us. It's, a, yeah. it's an honor. Um, th- that is a really loaded question. So mm-hmm. I have to say it's a, a difficult proposition. Glaucoma is tricky. Uh, there are lots of case-to-case differences. Um, in terms of general rules, I would say that I'm generally using uh, drops before laser still, although there's some evidence that that may change. Mm -hmm. Uh, Prostaglandin analogs, typically the first uh, drop used for patients Mm -hmm. because of their efficacy, because of their ease of use, and because of the safety profile. Okay. Do you agree, Joanne, or do you disagree with your mentor? She has to agree with me, actually. (laughs) I haven't finished the program yet, so I have to agree for now. Yeah. So have there been any patients that you have recommended, maybe SLT as a first-line treatment option, or is there a certain situation in which you would consider it before the prostaglandins? Uh, Sure. For uh, elderly patients, I think it's an especially good option. 
may be harder for patients to actually put drops in. It may be more difficult for them to remember to put the drops in. Mm -hmm. And the fact that SLT is relatively short-lived isn't as big a consideration for an elderly patient. So I'd say elderly patients are probably good for SLT. Also, people who you have a modest treatment goal. Uh, mm -hmm. SLT is not as efficacious as prostaglandin analogs, similarly efficacious to other medications. Uh, if you think that you would be able to achieve the goal, uh, pressure treatment goal, with the SLT, that may be a good standalone treatment. My feeling is if, if I'm likely going to need drops anyway, I'll usually mm -hmm. go to the drops over SLT. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Did you ask about it as first-line treatment or just treatment in general? More so first-line treatment. Like um, from the light studies, I know they they showed that um, having SLT as a first-line treatment if the patient has never used drops before or has never had any other glaucoma treatment, um, then it's as effective as using the prostaglandins because it was shown to reduce IOPs um, I think up to about 30%, just like prostaglandin. So yeah, I was just curious. I think most of us at Four Eyes also agree we start with prostaglandins first. But yeah, I was just curious to know if you No, I have to say it. there are exceptions. I'm an mm -hmm. ocular hypertensive. Oh, okay. So I take a daily medication. Oh. And I was disinclined to take prostaglandin analogs. Why? Vanity. Oh. I don't want long oh. lashes. I don't want mm -hmm. sunken eyeballs. I don't yeah. want brown rings around my eyes. Okay. I don't yeah. need my pressure as low. I'm on Timolol, uh, mm -hmm. half percent once a day, okay. and I tolerate it really well. I've been taking it for years. It gets me to my pressure goal. Mm -hmm. I'm ocular hypertensive. I don't have glaucoma, mm -hmm. so it's perfect, perfect medication for me. So I guess yeah. that's one one thing your listeners might appreciate is there really aren't hard and fast rules in glaucoma. There are yeah. a lot of exceptions to rules in glaucoma. And you really need to tailor uh, treatment to your individual patient. Yeah, because sometimes I forget that too. I, I have patients from ICO and some at West Oakland right now where we start on a drop immediately. And sometimes we, we tell them the side effects of prostaglandins, but we don't actually consider, you know, do, will they really care about those side effects? Because then... You, you know, so I mean, you if someone is... You don't we, consider if the patient really cares. <laughs> no, I mean, we, we say, you know, it's going to cause stinging, it's going to cause redness, but we don't actually let the patient... We don't give them, I guess, enough time to really process that. For the SLT, mm -hmm. I think we let our patients know, for the most part, that that option is there. Even no. if there are studies saying that it may be more effective than drops, a lot of patients don't want laser anyway. So I think it's good for it to be offered as an option. That's a good point. But. Ultimately, patients need to consent to do things. They need mm -hmm. to understand what their options are. They need to make informed decisions. And some people are really averse. You just say laser, and they mm -hmm. yeah. are really averse to that sort kind of, of freak treatment. Out. Right. There has been research suggesting that ocular hysteresis or corneal hysteresis and OCTA are some new diagnostic tools for glaucoma. And we don't have those implemented at the UC Berkeley clinic. Right. But would you guys want that in your clinic? Do you feel like those are important tools to add to the glaucoma diagnostic toolbox? This is a conversation we had. Probably the first time we ever had a conversation. <laughs> whether Absolutely. or not corneal hysteresis should be used as a diagnostic tool for glaucoma. Yeah. 
And what we've discussed is that there are a lot of diagnostic tools already. Mm -hmm. So it isn't giving us much more than what's mm -hmm. already there. Okay. What about for monitoring disease progression? Because now studies have also suggested that um, even if your patient has glaucoma, um, if their hysteresis value is still lower than 10, mm -hmm. then it shows that the patient is likely to progress a lot faster than someone who has a higher hysteresis value. Well, the, and is that's that a very helpful thing to know. Mm -hmm. You know, glaucoma is largely a benign okay. disease with important exceptions that are sight-threatening. Mm -hmm. So if we can determine who's at higher risk and who's not, that's a really important thing. Yeah. I have to say, we don't, is, as previously mentioned, we don't have the uh, corneal hysteresis and we're not using OCTA mm -hmm. uh, for glaucoma. Um, I do think there would be a benefit to uh, to being able to have corneal hysteresis now, mm -hmm. and it's something we're looking into as a yeah. clinic. Yeah. Although it has been around for quite a while, and it hasn't been mm -hmm. widely accepted. So I think the yeah. evidence is just kind of starting to push us in the direction of, uh, of wanting to use it. I think um, all of the doctors at Four Eyes, we also feel like it's, it's just another diagnostic tool because we already have so many... Um, ways to diagnose glaucoma and to manage glaucoma, mm -hmm. but um, we feel like the OCTA and hysteresis are nice additional diagnostic tools to have for those patients where you're still a little bit on the fence of whether they're still a suspect or if it looks like they may have glaucoma. It probably doesn't matter very much. You know, the, the problems in glaucoma, I have patients in my practice who are blind from glaucoma. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not blind from glaucoma because they didn't get OCT'd earlier or mm -hmm. because they didn't yeah. get a hysteresis measurement. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're blind because they don't understand their disease. No one has explained it to them. Yeah. They haven't had health care. There are all sorts of problems in glaucoma. I feel like our current uh, ways of determining glaucoma mm -hmm. are sufficiently accurate. The, the problem is people who don't have access to that at all, people mm -hmm. who are diagnosed late in the disease, that's a problem. People who are being monitored carefully, whether you have OCTA or hysteresis or not, mm -hmm. or even to, you know, to a certain extent, uh, OCT, nerve fiber layer and ganglion cell layer analysis, they're, you're, they're going to do okay. You're going to detect it early and get them started on treatment. I think it would be helpful to have to see if we change our minds, but yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it, it's just another the, piece of I, data. I have to say the, uh, yeah. the OCTA stuff for me, mm -hmm. th this every time a new technology is developed, there are a bunch of papers that are basically, I just got an OCTA, and I've been OCTAing a bunch of people, and, and this is what great. I found. Yeah. So there will be differences. Whether that yeah. means it's diagno of diagnostic importance, whether it means it's helpful for monitoring, we're so far away from knowing whether mm -hmm. that's the case or not. So I, I haven't really been, it doesn't surprise me that people mm -hmm. with glaucoma have a different parapapillary vasculature than people yeah. who don't. I'm not really sure what that means in terms of uh, diagnosing or monitoring patients with glaucoma. Can I add one more thing for new grads? Definitely. I just thought of something. Yes. So I think um, one thing that's important to keep in mind as a new grad is it's really easy to see something that points to glaucoma and want to immediately start treatment. But I think it's important to take a step back and make sure that everything makes sense. So if there's a piece of data that doesn't match the rest of it, or if you see something but things aren't changing, is the nerve tilted? Is there mm -hmm. something else that could be causing um, mm -hmm. the results that you're getting? 
And I think that um, it's easy to initiate treatment and then say that they're not progressing, but they may not actually have had glaucoma in the first place. And in addition to the relatively benign conditions you just mentioned, remember that glaucoma is an optic neuropathy, not the optic neuropathy, and people can have optic nerve problems for reasons other than glaucoma. I think there's a tendency for people to lump everything into glaucoma because mm-hmm. it's so common and forget that other things can affect the optic nerve as well. Yeah. I yeah, I agree with you, Joanne. So I had a few attendings during my rotations in fourth year mm-hmm. um, really stress the point that glaucoma is also not like a most glaucoma is not a night and day disease. Right. So if you see it today, they're not going to develop it and be in the severe stage tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially when I was a fourth-year student, I felt like any time I saw nerves that were even just asymmetric, but the rim tissue looked healthy, their IOPs were healthy, no family history, they had no other reason to warrant glaucoma testing, I would immediately jump to, okay, we need an OCT scan today. It really isn't that big a deal to do a workup. It mm-hmm. isn't a lot. So I wouldn't say, oh, I don't want to do a workup because mm-hmm. I'll be, you know, I'll be dooming them to it. years oh, of yeah. doing workups. You don't, you'll, you'll work up people similarly for all patients. You'll monitor patients over time differently for different patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just because you've done a workup to reassure someone they, doesn't have, they don't have glaucoma doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're compelled to do exactly the same okay, yeah. huge set of tests. So for an yeah. individual, you, you may do the workup and convince yourself, hey, this person absolutely doesn't have glaucoma. But you know, but we'll take a picture in three years' time, and we'll do some okay. comparisons when you come in for your routine exam. So I, I wouldn't feel compelled to continue mm-hmm. to, to do such an extensive workup every, every yeah. visit. I'd like to point out, too, you mentioned the cupping asymmetry in an mm-hmm. otherwise perfectly healthy patient. Mm-hmm. Usually that's a disc size difference. So mm-hmm. different size optic nerves will naturally have different size cups. And that's a good tip for the young yeah. grads is to look at the size of the disc itself and understand that a larger size disc will have mm-hmm. a larger cup, creating that asymmetry uh, yeah. by a natural means, not by glaucoma. Yeah. I know I learned just throughout fourth year to stop panicking when mm-hmm. I see a patient who looks like a suspect and also that it's okay to bring them back for follow-ups later you don't need to keep them on the same day for five hours to make sure you get the right field and all this um, because most of the time it's slow and progressive. So you so most of the most time. of the time. So There's when, those... when do you panic then? If they come in with angle closure. <laughs> so if it's an angle closure consideration, yes. acute angle closure, yeah. chronic angle closure. Or even pseudo exfoliation glaucoma and even pigment dispersion, I get a little iffy. Secondaries in general. Se- yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's all our time for today because I still need to eat lunch. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for both of you for coming in. Four Eyes appreciates it and our listeners will appreciate it as well. If the listeners have any questions or comments for Dr. Jacobson and Dr. Castaneda, um, then please email us at podcast4eyes at gmail.com and we'll, um, we'll share the messages with them. And yeah, thank you again. Thanks Great. for inviting thank you. us. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Four Eyes. And if you'd like to share your input on new advances for glaucoma or give us feedback on the episode, feel free to send us an email and stay tuned. Thank you.